tonight we're going to be looking at uh, kind of the word glory and getting an understanding of what this word glory is. You know, it's a word that you see throughout the Bible when talking about God. And, you know, the idea of glory in the world, however, I think is vastly different um, than the word glory that we read in the Bible when it comes to talking about God. And, you know, I think right now is a really great time to talk about glory because we can kind of understand how the world perceives glory. For the last uh, week or so, many of us have had our eyes fixed on Brazil and watching what is happening in the Olympic Games. Anybody here, like, big fans of the Olympics, been watching everything, just like one or two people? Nobody else watches the Olympics, man? Oh, yeah, there we go. got some waving hands back there. So, uh, you know, if you right now were to just get online and Google 2016, this is how you type, apparently. <laughs> 2016 uh, Olympic glory, you're going to find just like a list of articles and, and images of people that are standing on this pedestal receiving this gold medal. It is like the, the pinnacle of athletic achievement, standing with all of the eyes of the world upon you as you are kind of named the greatest in your competition uh, in this particular Olympic Games. And what a moment of glory. It really is a glorious moment when you see someone receiving after all their hard work all their effort to receive this recognition. The thing about that kind of glory, though, is that it truly is kind of this fading glory. It's this glory that comes, and then with years and with the progression of humanity and with history moving on, it's a glory that eventually starts to fade. I mean, how many of you remember who the 200-meter winner was in the 96 Olympics? Anybody? Oops, somebody over here, we got like a huge track and field buff over here. It's okay if you know, you're going to ruin my example. No, it's like, you know, in a room this size, there's one guy that knows who it is. And it's like, but you can imagine for whoever that person was, a man or the woman who won the 200 meter, like standing up there in the glory that they had in that moment. And yet now none of us, except for my friend over here, can, can name who they are anymore. It's like, it is this glory that comes and then it starts to fade away. And this is not the kind of glory that we see when it talks about God in the Bible. And so we're going to look in Psalm 8, and we're going to see the kind of glory that David, the writer of this psalm, um, mentions when he talks about God. So let's look in Psalm 8 together. We're going to start in verse 1. Um, we're not going to be able to unpack every single verse in this psalm. I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit just because of the nature of what we're talking about tonight to make it through. But I'm going to read the whole thing through right now. Let's read. Who's David? Shepherd and king, warrior and poet. Uh, psalm 8, verse 1, he says, Lord our Lord. That, that is literally Yahweh our Lord, the name of God. Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you even care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the work of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord out of Psalm 8. And so here we find David, who, remember, was a shepherd in his younger years. And he, you can imagine that one night he's sleeping in his father's field, looking into the sky, and he's just overwhelmed by what he sees in the sky. And he's just moved to poetic expression. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory in the heavens. 
But what in the world is glory? Like, what does he mean by that? You know, I think in the Bible, when we read about glory, it's this, this description of the majesty and the eminence that just radiates from God's very being. One, one way to understand glory, a simple definition of glory, is, is the, the visible manifestation of God's power. The visible manifestation of God's power. And we, we see this visible power demonstrated several times in the Old Testament. One, one place in particular, if you look in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you find Moses talking about when the Israelites were at the foot of Mount Sinai. And when the Israelites were at the foot of Mount Sinai, God's presence literally came down on the mountain and they were at the base of the mountain looking up with their eyes wide as the top of the mountain seemed to be exploding. There's light and there's smoke and there's thunder and there's lightning. And the Israelites sit at the bottom of this mountain and they're just like, oh my goodness. Like they're freaked out. They don't know what's going on. God's presence has come down and they're terrified. The visible manifestation of his power, this glory was too much for them. They sent Moses up the mountain because they were scared. It's confusing when we read this sometimes because, you know, we, we typically like to think of God as good. We describe God as kind and merciful and good. And so we come to a place like this where we see this visible manifestation of his power and it's terrifying. And it's like, what, is God good? Or, or is, he, is he terrifying? Or, or is he both? Is it possible that he could be both? And I think he's both. You see, God is all good and all merciful and all kind and all loving, yet he is also all powerful. And if you've ever come in contact with something that has more power than you could ever imagine having, it naturally begins to terrify you a little bit. I heard someone recently use the sun as a great metaphor to understand God's glory. You know, thanks to the sun, the sun in our solar system, we have light on this planet. We have energy on this planet. We have life on this planet. You take the sun out of our solar system and all life on planet Earth ceases to exist completely. Very few people would argue that the sun is a bad thing. Most people agree that the sun is very good. It's very good for us in our life. However, can you imagine if somebody's like, hey, the sun's so good, we're gonna, we're gonna figure out a way that we can like load people up and go take a tour of the sun and get as close to it as we can. Nobody would do that. Because the closer and closer and closer you get to the sun, you start to experience that its power is so far beyond what you could imagine that it will completely consume you if you get too close. And this is kind of the picture we get of God's glory in the Bible, that he is so good yet so powerful that his presence and his glory is so much that it can appear terrifying when people get too close. And so here's David lying in this field at night can imagine it's a dark night. He's looking up out into the stars. There's no light pollution. You know, it's not like looking at the sky in Nashville. It's like being in a rural area where there's nothing to block your view. And can you imagine the view that David had? The number of stars that he would have seen laid out across the sky. And in that moment, he says, wow, how majestic are you, Lord? How, your glory, you have put your glory in the heavens. And yet it doesn't take David long while he's sitting there gazing at the glory of God to be overwhelmed by his own insignificance. You look at what happens in verse 3. As David's staring off into the sky, he says, God, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you were mindful of us, human beings, that you even care for us? You see, David, 
in this moment of looking out into the glory of God is suddenly keenly aware of how small he is and how insignificant human life really seems when comparison to the vastness of God's glory. We've probably all had one of these moments, one of these moments where you realize just how small you are. Uh, I, I had a moment like this. I remember I was uh, taking a hike when I lived in British Columbia. I was uh, doing a hike. It's in the Garibaldi Range. It's this random mountain range that many of you probably never even heard of. And we were climbing a mountain that wasn't even that big. And um, I've got a picture. We hiked up to this lake called Wedgemount Lake. And it was beautiful. I mean, absolutely amazing. Like water, like I've never seen before. And uh, across that lake is this huge glacier. And there's like five summits circling this lake. And so we, we camped out by that lake that night. And the next morning, uh, one of the guys with me, we got up early and we decided to summit one of the peaks that was there. It's called Mount Cook. It was like 8,500 feet. And so we went to the summit. And on our way down, I stopped to take some pictures and he kept going. And at one point he stopped and realized I had not caught up with him yet. And so he turned around to see where I was. And this is what he saw when he turned around looking for me. I don't know if you can tell where I am in this picture. I'm I am like this little dot right there, like waving my arm and waving at my friend, like barely even visible in the middle of this scree field on the side of a mountain. And I remember we got to the bottom, he showed me this picture on his phone, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like this mountain's huge. This mountain's so big. I'm so small. And then I began to realize this is like, this is an insignificant mountain. You've never even heard of it. It's like 8,500 feet compared to Everest, which is like 29,000 feet. I mean, this was not a very big mountain, and yet it engulfed me and swallowed me and made me look like a pea. And here's David looking at the sky, and he's overwhelmed by the glory of God, and he says, God, who are we? Who is, who is humanity that you even think of us? That you, we would even enter your mind, oh God. And today, we have an even bigger sense of this because, see, technology's only gotten better. David is left to look into the cosmos with his naked eye, but we can see much, much more than David could, right? Thanks to the, the Hubble telescope, astronomers have been able to map out uh, a three-dimensional map of our universe. And it's a portion, it's only about a quarter of the sky that we see at night that they've been able to map out. But in a quarter of the sky that we see, they have identified 1.2 million galaxies, 1.2 million galaxies. You know, each galaxy has hundreds of millions of stars like our sun in it. 1.2 million galaxies, each with hundreds of millions of stars. It's like how insignificant, how small are we? We, we, are, we are like a speck. We are like an atom. We, we understand what James writes in the Bible when he says that our lives are but a vapor, a mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow what are we that we should even enter the mind of a God that could create something so vast and so incredible? And of course here, the question of God becomes kind of important because I'm asking the question, who are we that we would enter the mind of God, but it actually assumes the existence of a God. And see, we live in a world where the, the assumption of an existence of God has been completely pulled out for many. And when you pull God out of that statement, the question is not no longer, who are we that we would enter the mind of God? The question now becomes, who are we? What is our significance in a vast and empty universe of nothingness? See, Carl Sagan, who's a pretty famous uh, astronomer and author, he kind of described it a certain way. He gave a lecture on what he called the pale blue dot. The pale blue dot was a picture of Earth that was taken in 1990. 
It was taken from 3.7 billion miles away, and it's just this picture of all black with this tiny little speck of blue in the middle of it, and that's the planet Earth. And he talks about this pale blue light, and this is what he says. He says, humanity's posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. You see, for, for Carl Sagan and many others, he looks out into the universe and we've, we've prodded as far as we know to and we continue to prod further into the universe and we find nothing else out there. He says there's nothing outside of ourselves that will come to help us. And so the question becomes, what is the significance of humanity in the middle of the vast, empty nothingness? What is our significance? So this gets you into the world of philosophy, and there are many different philosophies out there about the significance and the meaning of humanity. You know, some say, listen, there's no God, and so therefore there is no meaning, there's no purpose. This would be called nihilism or nihilism, and some would say, there's no God, but hey, you can still have individual purpose. You get to decide what your significance is, what your purpose is, what your meaning it is. It's all what you want it to be. This is called existentialism, and this is one of the loudest voices in our culture. This is you, the individual. You get to decide your meaning and your purpose. And there's, there's other philosophy. Humanism would say, you know, it's not up to us as individuals. It's up to us as a collective whole. We've got to band together and create a common core of ethic that will keep humanity going and the human race going. But here's the thing about all these philosophies, with all of these options for meaning when there's no God, the onus is on you. The burden is on you or we to create meaning, to create purpose, to create significance for our lives. This is what I love about what David does in Psalm 8, though. You see, David sees an entirely different option. David, look, if you look on in verse 5, he's asked the question. He says, God, what is humanity that we would even enter your mind? And then in verse 5, look what he says. Yet you have made them, that is, you have made humanity, you have made us a little lower than the angels. Now, this, this word angels is kind of important. We need to pause there for a minute. David would have written this in the Hebrew language, and, and if you look at the original Hebrew manuscript of Psalm 8, what David wrote was the word Elohim. The word Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. What David really wrote, and if you look, if you might have a Bible that has footnotes, you'll see that down there. What David really wrote was, you have made us a little lower than God. God, you have made us just a little lower than yourself. Now, I can tell you about why that word got changed. It was basically, there was a, there was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and they translated it as angel, and that got carried over into our English translation. But the Hebrew writing of what David wrote, he's, he's declaring, God, who are we? We're so insignificant, and yet you made us just a little lower than yourself. And then he keeps going. Look what he says. You've made us a little lower than God. You've crowned us with glory and honor. You have made us rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under humanity's feet, all the flocks, all the herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. God, you have put all of this underneath the rule of humanity. Now, 
what is going on here? What is going on with what David is saying? Because when I, you know, when I look at the world, I read this, and I'm like, wow, we have significance. We have purpose. Wow, look what God has given us. And yet then I look at the world around me, and it seems that humanity is doing anything but ruling over creation. It seems that humanity is anything but a little bit lower than God. It seems like we are a long way from being God. And so is David just, is, he, is it just wishful thinking? Is he being poetic and dreaming of what could be? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think David would have been aware of the same things we're aware of. You know, we're, humanity right now, if we're honest, humanity is not ruling this creation very well. Conservationists will tell you that, that humanity is actually ruining our planet, flushing it down the toilet. If you've ever talked to a farmer who has to protect his livestock from predators, he'll tell you very quickly that the wild animals did not get the memo that they were supposed to submit to him as a human and not take his livestock. You see in the headlines of people losing their lives to wild animals. So when we look around, we don't see the world lining up with what David says in Psalm 8. But here's what I think David is doing. I think David is looking back, but he's also looking forward. He's looking back, but he's also looking forward. Let me tell you how. He's looking back. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything, the vastness of the universe. He creates our planet. He creates everything on it. And then the crowning achievement of his creation in Genesis 1.27 is humanity. The Bible tells us God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. As David reflects on creation, he remembers God's intention for humanity. He put his image in humanity in a unique, a unique way. He said, I put my image in you. And then he, God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, he says, listen, you are, my, you are my image bearers. He blesses them. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill this world with the glorious image of God. Humanity was tasked with filling the world with the glory of God, with the image of God. And yet we all know how the story went. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, instead of walking in joy and receiving the glory that had been bestowed upon them, they sought to attain their own glory. And they sought independence from God. And when sin entered the world, the rule of God that was intended for humanity is taken back from them. And so David reflects on what God intended when he created humanity. And he cries out what God has done in us, but then he also looks forward, and I don't, we don't know for sure if David knew that he was being prophetic with Psalm 8, but we can rest assured that it is a prophetic thing because when we look into the New Testament, when we look at the person of Jesus, we start seeing this word glory start to pop up all over the place in the birth narrative of Jesus. When the angels come, when the angel comes to Mary and tells her what's going to happen, the glory of the Lord is there. When the shepherds are in the field to announce the birth of Jesus, the glory of the Lord is there. And then Luke 2, you have this strange old guy named Simeon who's just hanging out at the temple. Jesus has been born and his mom and dad are bringing him to dedicate him at the temple. And this old guy, Simeon, comes up to them, takes Jesus out of their arms. He says, praise be to God because I have seen the glory of Israel. I have seen God's glory promised in his Messiah. You see, in Jesus, somehow, somehow the inconceivable glory of God gets encapsulated into a human body. John will say it this way in John chapter 1. 
He says the word, which would have been the Greek equivalent of understanding all power. All, he says the, the, the word, the glory of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then John says, we have seen his what? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. This is, it's almost too good to be true that the glorious God who created everything that we see, everything that we know, would somehow put on a human body and walk on this earth. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8, the glory of God captured in a human body. If we want to see how humanity was meant to be, we need to look no further than the man Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus, we see the rule that God intended for humanity captured perfectly. We see a man who is crowned perfectly with glory. We see a man that all of creation responds to him. He speaks and the wind and the waves obey him. In Mark chapter 1, we find him. He goes into the wilderness and says he's with the wild animals. Jesus walked on this earth and all of creation obeyed him. Sickness would flee when he told it to. Jesus exercised the rule that God intended for humanity at the very beginning. The fulfillment of what David was speaking of in Psalm chapter 8. Humanity crowned with this purpose. You see, what I love about Jesus, though, is that Jesus, he never seeks to grab that glory and hang on to it for himself. You read through the Gospels, and he is constantly deflecting that glory back to his Father. He's constantly saying, the Father deserves the glory, the Father deserves the glory. And even when the Father glorifies Jesus, Jesus does the unthinkable. Look with me in John chapter 17. This is page 754, if you have one of our Bibles. John 17, page 754. I read this verse this week when thinking about this idea of God's glory, and it just blew my mind. I'd never really thought of it this way. John 17, Jesus is praying. He's already prayed for his apostles. This is the night before he dies, and now he's praying for all those who would come to believe in him because of the ministry of his apostles. So that means he is praying for all of us. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. Look what he says in verse 22 of chapter 17. He says, Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus, the glory of God in the flesh. As he prays to his Father, he says, Father, I am going to give them the glory that you gave me. This is such an amazing picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You see, Christianity, following Jesus, it is not just a personal preference of religion among many. To follow Jesus means that I step into the given glory that is otherwise unattainable. I step into receiving the glory that God intended for me as an image bearer of his. To follow Jesus means we partner with God by being agents of reflecting his glory in a world of humanity that has forgotten that it has an intended glory. We live in a city where there is this, this cultural Christianity, where it's like church is just kind of this thing. You know, we, we go on a Sunday morning and we sit on a pew or we sit on a white chair, we sing some songs. It doesn't do anything for the rest of our life. It's just, it's part of this obligatory ritual that you go through because you grew up in it. And Jesus would say, don't you see that I've got so much more for you than that? You have purpose. 
You have meaning. You have significance. I want to give you the glory that the Father has put up on me so that you can bear the image of God Almighty so that the glory of God can come to be seen completely in your life. To be a follower of Jesus means that we get to bear the glorious image of God to the world around us. You have been saved for this purpose to reflect the glory of God, just like Jesus, the Son of God, reflected God's glory when he was here on earth. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, the embodied glory of the Almighty, he looks at you, he looks at us. He says, I see you, I know you, I love you, I see you, I know you, and I love you, and I have more for you than you could ever attain for yourself. You see, the glory that Jesus longs to give us from the Father is so different than the glory of the world around us. The glory of the world around us is kind of an achieved glory. It's something you have to strive for and work for and train for and reach for. But the glory that God longs to give us, it is His. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can grasp ourselves. It is something He freely longs to give you. He longs to give you purpose. He longs to let you reflect his glory out of the graciousness of just who who he is. The glory of this world says, hey, you should seek to elevate yourself. You should seek to strive for yourself, to make a name for yourself, to seek glory for yourself. But the glory of God says, listen, you're going to have to die to yourself and realize that you can do nothing to gain the kind of glory I want to give you. Because the glory that the world has to offer is a fading glory, but the glory that God longs to give us is eternal. And so in this life, sometimes we have to, we die to ourselves in order to gain this this never-ending eternal glory. And sometimes Christianity gets painted as this, this kind of like, hey, if you come to Jesus, everything will be great, everything will be happy all the time. And it's like, truthfully, look at Jesus, the one that we follow, the one that, that bore the glory of God. He suffered immensely. And yet he suffered immensely because he had his eyes fixed on eternal glory that he knew would never fade. And this is why Paul can say in Romans 8, look, I consider the present sufferings of this world, they pale in comparison with the eternal glory that God has for us. God longs for us to reflect the glory of who he is. Now, I know that some would hear this message and they would think that it's just arrogant of Christians to think that we have any significance in the universe to think that we should be any more significant than any other part of the created world, but it's, it's actually the opposite of that. It's, it's this humbling experience. You see, our significance as followers of Jesus, it is not a reflection on us. It, is, it says nothing about who we are or who we think we are. It is a reflection on the goodness and the grace of God. It is accepting that without God, we are nothing so that we can receive the something that he has for us. You see, reflecting God's glory does not mean that we are arrogant. It means that we are humble. We realize that we have nothing to offer. And so we just open our hands wide and say, God, we want what you have for us. God, we want what you have for us. Now, what what do we do with this? Uh, This sounds really great, that God wants to give us significance, purpose, and meaning, and he longs for us to reflect his glory and to bear his image. But what what do we do? You know, I I think Jesus prays it really well in John 17, and this is where we'll finish up. You know, our our mission at Ethos is to love God, love people, awaken the movement that Jesus began. And if you look at what Jesus prays, you see all of this. Uh, Starting in verse 21 of chapter 17, Jesus says, God, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just 
as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what do we do with the glory God wants to give us? Jesus prays that we would be one, that we would be in him as he is in the Father. You know, we say, Jesus says we need to love God. Love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Open our hands, receive this glory that he longs to give to us. Stop trying to earn it. Stop striving for it. Stop wearing yourself out for a glory that is going to fade and give yourself entirely to the one who made you, who knows you, who sees you, who loves you. He says, be one with Jesus as Jesus is in the Father. Love God with all that you are and receive what he has for you. Second thing, Jesus says, listen, Father, may they be one as we are one. This picture of unity. You see, when we understand that we are all image bearers of God, we understand that we are all intended to bear the glory of God, it changes the way we look at each other. You see, before I looked at others as either competition or someone that was lower than me or someone that was better than me, but instead now every human being I see, whether they have achieved success and glory for themselves or whether they have not, I look at them and I go, wow, you are an image bearer of God Almighty. You are intended to bear the glory of God, and this is good news. And so we devote ourselves to one another, seeing the goodness of God in each other. Every week we gather around this plastic cup with juice in it and this little piece of bread. And it is a reminder, it is a reminder that Jesus, whom God glorified, longs to give his glory to us so that we could live for him. And then Jesus sums it up by saying this, may they be one as we are one so that the world will know. You see, when we start to love one another like this, when we start to see one another as image bearers of God, the world notices. Because the love that we're called to love one another with is not a love that we can conjure up on our own. It is only a love that God can put into our hearts. And when we learn to love one another this way, I promise you the world takes notice. The world takes notice. So Jesus says, may they be one as we are one. Let us be one as God and Christ are one. Let us love one another. Let us call out the image of God in one another so that the world will know that there is a God of glory who loves them. God of glory who loves them. So as we go to communion tonight, I want to give us kind of just two things to think about. So I know there are some of you in here that you've been Christians your whole life. Your whole life you've been coming to church. But do you know Do you know that there is a God of the universe who not only sees you, but he knows you and he longs to fill your life with holy purpose and divine glory. He longs to put his Holy Spirit within you. He longs for you to live in communion with his spirit, experiencing the glory of the one and only on an everyday, day by day kind of situation. Do you know this? If you've never experienced the glory of God in this way, then just ask him. Take that bread, take that cup, get with a brother or sister and say, I need to experience the glory of God more in my life. We'll have men and women up here that want to pray with you at the respond banner. Come up, let us pray for you and just pray that God will begin to pour out his glory upon you for the sake of his name, that he would be glorified in your life. Some of you here are, 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 you're not followers of Jesus yet, and, and you're, you're a little skeptical, and all of this sounds a little too good, and here's, here's all I'd say to you is that I want you to know that Christianity, if you become a follower of Jesus, it does not mean that suddenly you think more of yourself than other people. It does not mean that you think you're better than everyone else. 
It means that you realize actually how little you are. And you are blown away by a God who would take the time to love you. Do you know there's a God that loves you? Did you know that you can encounter him through his Holy Spirit, even tonight, as we worship, as we commune, as we pray for one another? Let's not leave this place forgetting that we walk as image bearers of God in the world around us. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to spend the last bit of our time together. You can take communion. It's on the bar and on the tables. We're going to worship. We're going to reflect on the glory of God. We're going to ask the glory of God to meet us in this place. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you at the Respond Banner. All of these things we're going to spend our time doing together over the next few minutes. Let's pray. Father God, I praise you, God, that in your infinite glory and infinite wisdom and infinite love, you sought to create us. And you created us uniquely with your image. Father, it's honestly, it's so hard to actually believe this. And Lord, I know that we need your help to believe it. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to give us more faith, to believe that you have accomplished through Jesus what you intended from the very beginning, to put your image on all of humanity, Lord, that your glory could fill the earth. Father, would you come and commune with us tonight? Jesus, be here amongst us as we commune. Holy Spirit, be here as we commune, as we worship, as we pray. Would you help us to encounter your glory in a very real way tonight, Lord? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.